the next two weeks plus uh, Labor Day is kind of a, a gap or a window of time between two major series. We just finished the way, the study of the book of Acts, and now we're into a window where there's these two weeks and then we have Labor Day weekend. On Labor Day weekend, Piercing Word, which is a group that literally memorizes the scripture, tell, speaks it, quotes it to you while acting it out. It is, it is dramatized while they're quoting it. They will be here on Sunday of Labor Day weekend, and they're going to be quoting uh, the book of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is going to be very prominent over the next eight weeks, and so uh, it will be an opportunity to kind of cement in our minds a little bit of a, a visual biblical picture of what Paul is saying in that book. And so that will be on Labor Day weekend. But for those of you that are here today, and if you come next week, it's going to be two weeks on relationships. And so I, 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 the reason why we're going there is that over the last several months, uh, there's been some things that, have been, that I've been a part of that my heart has become concerned and I am grieving over and I want to speak. This is not a soapbox sermon, trust me. But it is a vision sermon in the sense of, of how the, the church can rise above the culture of today in greater strength and therefore glorifying God more prominently by how we commit to one another in marriage and in relationships and in business relationships. And so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you're new here this morning, I want to introduce myself. My name is Tony, and I am a pastor here. And, uh, and we, we use the Word of God regularly as part of our teaching. It's where we pull all of our teaching from. And so our ushers are right now providing scriptures. If you do not own a Bible, this Bible can be yours to keep uh, and take it home with you. If you just need to borrow for the service, do so. And you can leave it on your chair, and we'll get it after the service. So I know for the church, you know that I haven't been here. I'm introducing myself probably to you as well because I've been gone for three Sundays. And, uh, and so I, I want you to know I've come back fully restored. And, uh, and it's, it's really easy to restore when you've spent your vacation, not at the beach, but at the prairie. And so I've been in Kansas for three weeks, and, uh, and, and it's a very slow pace, uh, especially in my hometown, and uh, gave me a lot of opportunity to re rest and relax. But by the time I was coming home and I hit that Indiana line, I was ready to get home. And I wished I could just bypass Indiana and get to Pennsylvania. And, and, uh, but uh, anyway, so I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to talk about this this morning. So we're going to turn our Bibles to Matthew 5. We're going to be in verses 27 and following. But before we get there, I've actually got a pretty significant chunk of storyline that comes out of Scripture that we're going to deal with. But to give it context, here's why I am feeling the need to speak into this this morning. Just in watching the news or reading news or being on social media and listening to people and then as a pastor uh, investing in relationships here or, or interceding for relationships here, there are some things that have begun to be so patternistic that I am concerned. Just in the news, just the public news side of things, we have you could read almost on a daily basis about broken treaties trade deals that are going away, or friendships that are dissolved, or marriages that are no longer. In that, you usually get a story as to why that is so. And I've noticed that this story is becoming consistent. And basically, it's now marking our view culturally of relationships. Here it is. These are the values that are being spoken right now in explanation or justification of broken relationships. Number one, it doesn't benefit me anymore financially. Or it's no longer exhilarating. Or overall, I'm just lacking fulfillment. Or you might hear this, a second idea is, <laughs> it's just going to be costing too much to fix up or to update. I mean, look at Wilbur Chocolate Factory, the oldest chocolate factory in America. It was just going to be too costly to fix up and update. But what are they doing to it? New companies coming in and fixing and updating. 
But you hear these stories regularly, and it's not just about business decisions. It's about relationships. It's going to be too much effort to fix it. It's too far gone. Or it's, to, to change how it is, it just stuck. So I'm just going to coast and let it be as it is. So what it might happen in business is also translating into relationships. So again, it doesn't benefit me anymore. It's not financially beneficial. It's not fulfilling. It's not worth the investment to fix it or update it. Here's another one. It's going to require more energy than I have to give. It's going to require more energy than I have to give. You know, when, when talking about, uh, to other uh, pastors that are coming new into churches, more often than not, they say the greatest challenge is that the leadership usually is exhausted when they arrive at a new church. And they don't have the energy to see change happen. The same thing happens in relationships in businesses. It's like, wow, this is so broken. I don't know that I have the energy to fix it. Or let's bring it back to a relationship within marriage. I see the issues. I may even see what could fix it. But the energy it will take to see that change through, I'm not sure I have. And then lastly, you usually hear this in justification. I found something better or that makes me feel better. What's interesting when you hear this term, especially spoken by famous people, Hollywood elites, is that they will say, I still love this person to death. I love them a lot. But we just found that there were other things that are better for us at this stage right now. And they move on. As if the covenant or agreement they had in marriage meant nothing. It was just a seasonal thing. And now there's something better. What's interesting is that while some of these things used to start just in the business realm, it, that it's now becoming the norm within the family realm that we treat our relationships just like we do our businesses. If it doesn't benefit us, then we don't invest in that relationship. If it's not exhilarating, it doesn't make me feel more energy. I don't invest in that relationship. If I don't find fulfillment, I'm done investing in that relationship or I don't even go into that relationship. Or if it's needing fix, it's like, you know what? It's probably not worth fixing. I think it might be something better. So why fix this when there might be something I can just walk into that doesn't require fixing? Or just the energy levels are such, we just want to coast. Finding greener grass pastures is often, often an appealing strategy, but finds itself wanting even in the end. These philosophies have been embraced socially, have they not? Have you not seen this? Even in your own relationships around you, have you not seen friends, family, treat relationships this way? Are we not seeing in our news and our social medias that this is the norm and it's to be expected that, that any committed relationship has its end and you just move on because there's other things that could be better. This is easily bought into until you're the recipient of somebody who's behaving that way. It's real easy to operate with those standards but when somebody begins to operate on that standard and you can even affirm it but when you're the recipient of that model all of a sudden it doesn't shine so bright in fact it leaves people who are the recipients of those decisions it leaves them feeling disillusioned with who they are or that they don't know if they can even trust their perspective anymore and that what the was the relationship real at all I mean, if you live your life having been in a relationship for a long time, and especially in some of those long-term marriages that all of a sudden dissolve, and it's because one of them maybe was unfaithful, and the other one was left to think, did I just simply not have a sense of reality for 30 or 40 years? Imagine your trust and your ability to understand and see things all of a sudden is gone in a moment shattered and now you don't even know if you can believe something with your very own eyes even if it happened in front of you let me tell you 
When you get that disillusioned with your ability to, to trust in what you see and to trust some of the intuitions as, as to what's going on around you or, or your belief in certain things, it causes pain, deep-seated pain that can lead to anger issues or depression issues that leads to hopelessness. What's interesting, when you study the history of some of these people in America that have done some of the school shootings or who have gone and killed people in the former workplace, what's often going on in the storyline behind it is that somewhere in there, there was a broken relationship that happened. They became disillusioned, and now all of a sudden, their ability to understand and interpret the world seems like something they can't even trust. They become hopeless and they become embittered. And then they want to act out of it and then they do something that they would have never dreamed doing. There's other ways that these anger issues manifest itself. It's often manifesting at weird points where people that were normally, let's say, docile or, or encouraging all of a sudden get road rage in strange moments. Never forget having road rage experience with a man that was driving out of Brethren Village. The guy definitely looked like he was later years in life. And he was swerving and going around me, giving me the bird. He was beside himself. I was worried he was going to have a heart attack at the wheel. My guess is, is that man did not used to be that way. But something happened along the line of his life that changed his perspective. It distorted his perspective and he became disillusioned with life. It led to that for him where he's just a bitter man. But for others, it doesn't lead to bitterness. It leads to just hopelessness. Why is suicide so significant in our society? Why is it that depression is, is now the norm for so many people in society? Why are anxieties out of control where people are finding need to find extra help to make it through anxiousness of life? It's because there is no founding rock within society's values. We have clung to things that shift and move. And we're all looking for something that can be our true north, our navigation point. But because we're buying into values that are shifting sands, we're struggling to find hope. Unfortunately, some of the secondary victims are the ones that struggle the most. You know, you might have a Hollywood elite saying, well, I really loved that spouse of mine to death. But things are going to be better. Well, meanwhile, their children are crushed. Why is it that, that children of divorcees struggle so much? Now, trust me, I know there's brokenness here in this room. Some of you might even be that secondary victim. Others of you know that maybe your broken relationship has caused your own children to be that secondary victim. It's pain. And there's no hiding it. And I don't want to pretend it's not here in this room. The secondary victims struggle with hopelessness as much as the ones who are the recipient of the broken relationship itself. It could cause anger in them. It can cause hopelessness in them. Coping with an uncommitted society then becomes this as a default. If it's becoming so intensely angry or so intensely hopeless, and I don't want that, where am I left? Here's where you see it going. It leads to a society that embraces the idea of ambivalence or just confirmation to whatever's the norm around you. And this is dangerous. Because as soon as everybody starts treating relationships ambivalently, then there are no senses of regard or responsibility for how we behave towards one another. And as a result, it will cause the, the implosion of the family unit if that hasn't already happened. Or it will certainly cause an implosion of society when no business deal could ever be trusted. And no government official could ever be trusted. Again, may have already happened. And, and as far as anything else, that in our everyday parts of society, you can't even trust the person that might be your teacher because we become ambivalent. Why get your hopes up if they're only going to let you down? 
How many of us here in this room have grown up in the church and we thought, you know, my model for marriage is going to be that couple. I just see them loving on each other so much. They're so committed to each other. Only to watch that marriage dissolve in time. It crushes our perspective of commitment. And again, it can lead to anger, hopelessness, or you can just simply say, you know what? I don't like feeling the pain. I'm going to deny it and I'm going to just become ambivalent. Do you think I've touched a nerve in our society right now? This is real. And trust me, it's been real stuff that we've been dealing with as elders and as ministry leaders. And, and you as part of the body of Christ, I'm sure you've been dealing with it within your own sphere of influence, your own relationships, and in your own oikos. But let me tell you, that while society is trying to grasp for something that they can stand on that doesn't shift like society does, doesn't shift like humanity does, they're looking for something so secure and patterned that they can say, I have something I can stand on even when I feel disillusioned, even when I feel angry or I feel hopeless, there is something I can cling to. You see, this is where Sigmund Freud said, the only reason why the idea of God exists is because we feel too hopeless to be able to find the answer within ourselves. So we cling to an imaginary being, something else, and that's how we create the idea of God because we're incapable, incapable of handling it on our own. So, are we going to approach this idea of God through Freud's understanding of it where it's just simply an illusion that we cling to to find hope when we can't find hope within ourselves? Or do we believe that there is a creator God who is providing a different standard from society that we can truly cling to? Let me introduce you to his name. Because society has come up with this idea that the vast majority of society will, just, will say there is a divine being. There is an overarching powerful authority. In fact, they've even defined him as being an all-loving power. But then what they do is they take that all-loving power concept and then they define them according to what their wishes are. The problem is, is that continues to follow the pattern of if God's an ever-changing character figure, then what can you truly cling to? Because as you define him might be different from as you define him and then you've got a shifting figure. There's no hope in that whatsoever. So instead of defining this as being a, a divine power concept, I want to introduce you to him by his name that he gives himself. The creator God, when he introduced himself to Moses, said, I am Yahweh. I am the I am. And so this I am, he being the creator God, by whom I, we are made in his image, has a different pattern by which he interrelates with others. In fact, he operates under a pattern of covenant. It's not a term we often use in our society. We use contracts. We use commitments. But we've seen contracts break. We've seen commitments be very short-lived. But God operates, and this God being Yahweh, the supreme God, the one true God, treats covenant as an interrelational commitment or oath or promise that is secured by the cutting of blood and provides passage for a covenant participant. This, this was a sacred covenant that must be fulfilled. You see, for God, he's like, this is going to be a covenant that requires a blood passage. You can't enter into a covenant unless there is something like that broken by which we can enter and therefore participate in a covenant. In other words, it costs and therefore requires some kind of coverage. The blood covers the participant who enters into that covenant with God. So let's get look at the story of God. Now, we're going to get to that Matthew 5 passage here in a moment. But let me give you the storyline of how God treats relationships. And it's under the term covenant. First way, Yahweh's covenant with man began with Adam in Genesis. And what in Genesis chapter 2, he tells Adam that I am having relationship with you. This garden is yours. You will name the animals in it. You will care for the garden. 
You can, do, you can participate and eat of the trees that are here, but don't eat of the one tree that he called the knowledge of good and evil. So this covenant was conditional in the sense that, that you will have full freedom. You will get to experience this garden. This will be your home. You will be the leader of it as long as you don't eat of that tree. So the covenant is good. The agreement is there. God will be faithful. It's whether or not Adam would respond with being faithful. Well, we know that he failed. He failed miserably. And as a result, the covenant was broken. So then how did God respond? If God responded by the standard of our culture, well, it's like, well, this doesn't benefit me anymore. This isn't worth fixing and updating because he can see the future and he can know all of us. <laughs> I don't know if I want to go through all the effort to fix that. Or, whew, I don't know if I have the energy to redeem 10,000 plus years of, a, of humanity. Or maybe I should just start over and make something better than Adam and Eve. No, God had given that covenant to Adam. Adam broke the covenant, so God responded with a new covenant. Instead of annihilating man, which was part of his decision options, instead of annihilating Adam and Eve, he instead gave them a new covenant. And in this covenant, he extended some hope. But what he did first is he said to Adam, Adam, no longer is it going to come easy for you to do your work in caring for what's around you. It's going to become difficult. Eve, it's no longer going to be easy to give birth to a child. Now, I have no idea what birthing children was like before this. All I know is it says it's going to get very difficult later, and it's not going to be all joy and flowers and roses when that child comes out. It's going to be a painful delivery. But then God says this. So you're going to have life. You're, you're being given life. You're going to make life. You're still going to fulfill what I asked you to do. You're going to procreate. But here's this. There is going to be a redeemer. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. This may be the most important covenant that precedes the covenant that comes with Christ. Because in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God says to Adam and Eve, you will see that a child will come that will become the offspring of the woman and he will become an enemy to the serpent and ultimately will crush the head of the snake. You see, the serpent being Satan was the one who had caused the great deception. And, and at this point, he had won the battle. But God is now saying the war will be lost because your offspring, yes, given through pain, will come and will redeem you because he will crush the head of the snake. And so from here till Christ, you get the story of God, how he fulfills that covenant. So he says, there is a redeemer coming. So now is the story of that Redeemer coming. So then you get the next covenant, which is with Noah. And he promises Noah, he says, Noah, the earth has gotten so evil, and they're living so long with that evil, that it's corrupting society, and I'm going to annihilate it all, except I'm going to spare you and your family. So he makes a covenant with Noah that I'm going to spare your family from this wrath. And then eventually you get, he gets another covenant where then he, after that flood, that major flood, he makes another covenant with Noah saying, never again will I annihilate humanity from the earth by flood. And then he puts a rainbow in the sky and says, this symbol will be the symbol of my pledge to not annihilate humanity through a flood. So that was then Noah. So now, now it can basically, you have everything wiped out. All the, the, the growing sin of generation after generation from Adam to Noah is now gone with the exception of Noah's family. Then we get to the covenant with Abraham. Abraham was living in what we now know as kind of upper Iraq. 
and, and Iran. And he was up in that area. And then he was told, met by God. And God says, I, I found favor with you. And I'm going to promise you, I'm going to covenant with you, that I'm going to take you to a new place, a land that will become yours for you and your descendants. And so Abraham goes to a place he's never been before. And he travels to the land of Canaan. Then God promises him in Genesis chapter 17, verse 2, he promises that his descendants, not only will you have this land, but I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars. So you are going to grow, and many nations are going to come from you. And then that's when God instituted the pathway to that covenant. It's called circumcision. And he said that by this, it will be marking all your descendants, that you are in covenant with God, and you are entering through as a participant of that covenant, reminded by the circumcision of all males, a part of the Jewish uh, heritage. And so they are moving forward, being reminded that God has promised that their descendants will become many, and yes, that they will have the promised land. Now, I'm just, we'll just park here for a moment. I'm amazed. When you study history, when you consider all the people groups that were in the land of Canaan at the time when Abraham came, they were many. Abraham was just a small group. And he and his family come, and he was childless. And they, and, and they walk into where there's many different tribes of thousands of people. What's interesting is here all these centuries later, those people groups are no longer. Only the descendants of Abraham exist there. It's fascinating that after all that conquering of that land, and it wasn't even in Israel's hands for centuries until the 20th century, and God gives it back to Israel. You want to study some miracles, study what happened in Israel in the 20th century, and it will blow your mind that God kept this covenant that that land will be theirs. And ultimately, that their descendants will become as many as the stars, and that kings would come from Abraham's lineage, of which that has all been fulfilled. So God's covenants are continuing, and they've been permanent, and he gave that right of circumcision as by which we can all enter into a promise. But then a season uh, uh, where they were in captivity in Egypt, that happens, and then God makes a covenant with a man named Moses. He promises to Moses, he says, I am going to make a covenant to Israel, and you're going to share this with them, that they will become my treasured nation if they honor and obey me. And then he makes another conditional covenant in, in, in the latter parts of chapter 19 to chapter 24, when he says, I will promise to protect you and give you success in Israel and, and in this promised land if you continue to be faithful to me. And if you know the story, is that they are not faithful. And they were wavering. But God didn't. Yes, they violated the covenant and it was conditional. What did God do? He would then stop protecting them and let them be accessed by all their enemies. And they would suffer great harm. And then they would cry out to God again. And then he'd bring his protection back. He never let them be annihilated because of his covenants. Even though they denied him, he would still allow his love to be shown to them. They broke it, but he continued. Then David comes along, a man after God's own heart. And what does God do? He now gives a little bit more understanding to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When it says, there will be an offspring of the woman who will come and crush the head of the snake. And now God says to David, your descendants will be on the throne forever. So now David gets told that this coming Messiah, this coming Christ child, this coming Redeemer, will be through his line. That's a covenant that God makes with him. And then we enter into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tells the story of Jesus Christ and how he came from the line of David and he began to model for us the love of God, and the covenant of God. 
Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, was with his disciples, and he was showing them what they were to practice for years to come when he said, when he broke the bread, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took the cup and he held it before him and said, this is my blood, a blood of a new covenant. When you drink of this, drink remembering me. You see, a new cutting was going to happen. A new source of blood was going to come. Not that's temporal, but one that is permanent and by which participants can now enter into relationship with God for eternity. It's a once and for all cutting by which we can enter. Hebrews calls it like the curtain. His blood became like the curtain that we can walk through and go into the presence of God. Jesus also modeled covenant. You see, he knew that from Genesis chapter 3 till his, this point in time, he knew that that was the storyline to help them know that he is coming. And now he was here. And now he had the opportunity to then do what was unthinkable. God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, Modeling for us the original intent for the original Adam and showing us how God lives his standards so that we can then ultimately live a life that is full and complete. And then we know that Jesus then went to the cross, died on that cross, became that cut entrance, that blood entrance into covenant with God that we might have relationship with him. And then coming out of the grave that we might have life and life to the full. So this is the story of covenants. This is the story that began where a covenant was broken in the garden, but then a new covenant of hope was offered. And then you see the pattern of God being faithful to his word over and over and over again. What we learn about Yahweh is that he does what he says he will do. And that his covenants were also written not just for his benefit, but rather he actually built the covenants for the benefit of you and I. A benefit that would be to bring a healthy and full relationship between us and him. And God never wavered in his commitment to us. He never wavered on one single covenant. Even though he was rejected, he never wavered. Even though they, they, the nation of Israel rebelled against him or we rebelled against him, he never wavers. Yet juxtaposed to our approach to covenants, he does what he says, we do not. We don't often honor our word. We'll honor it to a point, but as soon as it gets difficult, all of a sudden it's in question. And it might be worthy of us being able to break. We tend to enter covenants with the intent of how it may benefit ourselves. We would rarely enter a contract that merely is for the benefit of another. And ultimately, we're quick to rescind our commitments or our words when it gets difficult. We tend to check out. Now I'd like to go to Matthew chapter 5. Again, if you understand that Scripture begins in that Genesis passage where, where he's saying, I am committed to man. I am going to make a covenant that I will redeem you. Then we get the storyline of how that's going to happen. And now we have Jesus in flesh right there communicating his view from the, what he's learned from the Father about covenants. So in Matthew 5, verse 27, listen, look at what it says says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the, your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Imagine being in the audience when Jesus says this. I mean, they've already, he's already validated himself with some miracles and some powerful moments. And his teaching is already wooing their heart. And then he says, you've heard it said that committing adultery 
having intimate relationships with somebody else other than your spouse, you hear that that is sin and you're not to do that. But I tell you, even if you look at another person that's not your spouse lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. And then he says, if so, if your eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. Now, if we were to take this literally in this situation, we might as well right now have every single man over the age of, let's say, 12, get up, take, lose an eye, and then probably another third of you would have to have a hand cut off. It would be one grotesque moment. Now, it's not that women don't struggle with lust, but let's just, it's just very easy to say every single man that is living and breathing has struggled with lust at some point. Now, it's been 10 years since I have. <laughs> but you get my point. The laughter is so, because we know. If Jesus was saying literally to cut your eye out, we would all be blind right now. We'd all be blind. So what is Jesus doing? He's doing what a good radio uh, shock jock would do. If you're trying to drive a point home, you state the extreme. Jesus does that. But he's making the point very clear. He is saying that, listen, you think it, you're fine just because you've never laid with somebody else other than your spouse. But meanwhile, you talk regularly about other women or men. You talk and discuss things. You flirt with them. You, you allow your mind to expand and explore things other than your spouse. And your language is filthy. And it talks about things in ways that you should not. And you think you're fine just because I've never slept with somebody that was other than my spouse. And Jesus is trying to get their attention because it's very easy to keep with the society ways of smoothing it over. And he wanted to put a stop to the smooth. And he says the shocking statement. You're committing adultery if your heart is being willing to permit it to wander. Now he has their attention. Clearly they're thinking, whoa. So even though I've not done this, I, if I just allow my eyes to wander and I allow my heart, then I'm putting myself in the same kind of guilt. What is Jesus saying? It's not just the actions. It's the heart. And if you let the heart go long enough, again, then the actions will follow as well. And so Jesus was doing a shot across the bow of our lives and saying, listen, don't excuse yourself just because you haven't done the explicit act. But be extremely aware if your heart is vulnerable and leaning that direction. He goes on to com communicate more and he says in verse 31, he says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife gives her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery as well. You, okay, so divorce is very prevalent in our society. But I would say that we don't consider our society a religious society. But in this day and time, they considered themselves a very religious society committed to Yahweh. But over time, because Moses gave a permission to allow for divorce, they began to write the rules of what's permissible for divorce and expand it so greatly. That by the time Jesus said this, the most common, one of the most common reasons for divorce was they did not like their spouse's cooking. I'm not kidding. It's found in records, archaeologically, that they found that one of the primary reasons for divorce at this time was that they would use, well, I don't like how she cooks. Because it was a very typical patriarchal society. And so therefore, it was, the, you know, the man would just say, you know what, I don't like this, so I'm going to just use that as my reason. It could be really something else. Maybe he even had an adulterous affair, and he wanted to figure out a reason that he can get out of the commitment. And so he would like, um, she doesn't know how to cook for me well. Or she doesn't know how to manage the children well. Or you can figure it out, and you can just come up with some nice line. 
There were several permissible things, and they'd let it grow. And, and Jesus, in a different text, says and confronts us and says, Listen, Moses only permitted divorce because your hearts got hard. Your hearts weren't in the right place. This was never meant to be the norm in our society. This is a, this is a covenant you're breaking. And when he describes this marital relationship that was broken and says, you know, that former spouses and so on, it becomes adulterous. What he's speaking to is that just because you divorce and you provide a certificate of divorce, as he says here, there's still consequence. There's still harm. There's still hurt. There's ongoing ramifications. And it's not just you. It's in your children. They suffer as well when there's broken relationship. And then when we're talking about just business relationships, you think that just because you end a deal and it, you didn't end it well, it doesn't matter. It's like it's done. You think you're fine. Well, guess what? Some of those things affect other business dealings. People here, especially in Lancaster County. The degrees of separation are such as that every other person you know is a Martin that's related to another Martin. <laughs> I might have to apologize for that later. Uh, the point is, we think we're okay breaking code or breaking covenant or breaking commitment in society, thinking it doesn't have any effect on me, when in reality, it will. And it does. Marriage is very easy to pick on because we can see it often, the pain and the, the depth of it. But we take lightly other relationships, and yet the same thing happens. Jesus was grieved by this. Look what he says next in verse 33. It says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear for, by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In other words, when we have to add things to our words to get people to actually believe us, what does that say about your word? No, I'm really shooting straight. I'm being serious. That's the lowest level of needing to add something to our yes. No, I'm, I, I'm being serious. Did you really have to say that? Or is your word that bad? You need to say it. And, and, if you, and they're still not believing. It's like, okay, well, you know, I really, I swear, I swear on a Bible. I would never do it. Cross my heart. Or I swear on my mother's grave. So, I'm a sports person. I like watching sports news and so on. It's been interesting when, because of all the drug testing that's being done on athletes, they come up with some kind of, you know, they, they get a, a positive test that says they've been taking drugs. And they say, I've never taken drugs. Never done it. One very prominent one says, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I never have. And then when asked again and pressed further, he goes, I swear on my mother's grave and I love my mother. Six months later, evidence came out that was so overwhelming the person had to own up to it. And this is what that individual said. I'm sorry if what I've done has hurt anybody. That's it. Didn't apologize for lying. Didn't apologize to those who hold the Bible in high regard. Did not apologize to God and saying, you know, God, I have dishonored the Bible. Did not apologize to those that are his family that who's, who was also knew his mother. None of that. I may have hurt somebody, so I apologize for that. And he got there just because he was finally fully caught. How different would we look to society if all we needed to say was yes or no or the, or the mere answer of us all and we wouldn't have to qualify our words? How would that change our relationships if we were that trustworthy? You see, Jesus modeled this 
for us. He took things to a new level. Just consider his day on the cross. On that day, he was brought before Pilate. Pilate became convinced he's innocent, but yet to appease the religious leaders, he went and had him flogged. While being flogged, they mocked him as a king. They put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on him. And then they beat him with rods over the head. It says that in scripture. So those thorns were driven into his head by the beating of rods. He was flogged on his back by those rods. And then came back before Pilate. And then he was given the ultimate flogging. The 39 lashes. The 39 lashes of the cat of nine tails. Which would have ripped him to shreds. While doing so, he was regularly being mocked. They would spit on him. When he got on the cross and he was put there, they began to mock him and, and, and recall some of the things he had said before and use his words to make him look small in the moment. If there was ever a moment where God would say, you know what, my covenant with man is done. It was there. I mean, he had said, man screwed up. I'm going to help man. I'm going to bring an offspring that will crush the head of the snake. And, and he is going to live out a life all for the, showing the love that I have for mankind. And this is what that mankind shows back to the most loving man to have ever walked this earth. They spat on him. They beat him. They ridiculed him. They crucified him. Mercilessly. And yet, what did Jesus say? Instead of the Father relenting and wavering, instead of it's like, you know what, I don't find any fulfillment in this, instead of thinking that, you know what, this is way too hard, I don't have the energy for this, no, none of that was so. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. He showed love to the very ruthless enemies that were hindering him because he was allowing himself to be the cut of blood by which you and I could enter into covenant with God. Jesus went through that so that his blood can be which, by which we can have relationship with God. Yahweh himself, that we can have that kind of relationship. And he st stayed with the covenant and let his yes be the yes. So how do we move forward with this in light of this? I, I think through, it's like, you know what? We need to really take evaluation. What commitments have we made? Not only in the workplace, but in the family. Not only in our relationships with others, but how about friendships? How about, how about in some of the words we've said to other people that are maybe neighbors? Have we said that, you know, we'll have you over for dinner, but we never did it. What kinds of things have we said, but we never followed through with? Our yeses need to be yeses. And, and I would recommend going through and saying, God, help me to see where my words have been spoken that I need to follow through with. And then renew before God your words. That your words become important that you don't so frivolously speak them. Secondly, my guess is, is that there are a lot of situations where you have broken relationships and you're not sure that you have the strength or energy to be able to make it through, would you not seek out a brother or sister in Christ for some help? Too often, as a pastor, I get invited to come and help. And, and trust me, I, we're very motivated as elders and pastors and ministers. And, and as a body of Christ, we're motivated to help others. But too often, we don't hear the need until the fire has almost burned the house to the ground. Seek help from the body of Christ. And lastly, if you've already broken a relationship that now can't be restored because it's been moved on and things have happened, this is the beautiful thing. If you're under that weight of a broken covenant and a historical relationship, we can appeal to the God of mercy and grace for forgiveness and healing. What I love is that when the woman that was caught in adultery is brought before Jesus... 
Instead of Jesus speaking to and telling her like, you know what, you've broken this covenant, you've broken this covenant, you've broken that, several other men's covenants for the, between them and their wives, you've done this and this. No, what did Jesus say? When she showed contrition and confession, he said, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He, he extended mercy to her. You see, what I've decided in my own life is that even though I, I think I do fairly well in honoring my yeses and my noes, I still break my word. There's still times I fall short. And if it wasn't for the mercy of God, I would suffer more greatly than I have. So we need the mercy of God, but we need to also pursue God because he's the faithful one. He's the true north that we can cling to. So as we conclude this service, what I'd ask is that you would allow yourself to come transparently before God and cry out. This song is a prayer. It's like, Lord, have mercy. Help me then to be a man or woman of my word. Let's pray. So God, Yahweh, the great I am, You are worthy of all praise because you have never once broken a covenant, a promise, an oath, a vow. And not only have you never broken, but you've also then, even when it was broken by the recipient, you never wavered, you continued, and you offered mercy and grace. And we're here now as objects of your mercy and grace because of the new covenant, the permanent covenant found in Christ. So thank you for persevering in spite of us. Now help us then model mercy and grace to others. Help us model truthfulness with our lips. Speak to our hearts now, I ask in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me, please? God, as the objects of your compassion, where you were unwavering and fully committed to reconcile people like us back to you, we say thank you for your character not being like ours. But I do ask that you would then conform our character to yours. So for those of us that have heard from your word today, may our yeses be yeses and our noes noes. And where we are broken and we're hurting, may you guide us to people that can help carry us. They can help lift our arms. They can help us have perspective and to renew strength so that we can step out in some of these relationships and, and begin to work at them again. And God, where we need mercy from the past, we need forgiveness from the past, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen. But walk with the integrity of our words, not so that you can be esteemed, but so that our God can be glorified. Amen. You're dismissed.